Thank you, team. It is our last week in May, and so we want to participate in our monthly memory verse together. I believe it's on the screen, so uh, let's say it. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Uh, well, I want to thank you all for your prayers. Uh, first off, they uh, told me to, to have surgery. And I have never had surgery as an adult. I had surgery when I was younger as a child, and I don't remember much about it. And so uh, I was expecting that I would just go in and, and have and be good to go and back on my feet and rolling again. Tell me anything about the side effects or anything about the pain or anything about what they were actually going to do. And I knew I was in trouble. Well, I knew I was in trouble a few different points uh, when I got there. First, um, they said, you're rather pale. Um, and I said, yes, I know. I'm a little bit nervous and I don't do well with blood and all this stuff. And they said, okay, well, we're going to lay you down then so you can't see what we're actually doing to you. And I said, good, thank you very much for that. Um, but then I started sweating profusely because I was very nervous. And so throughout the procedure, they kept saying, are you okay, sir? Are you okay, sir? And, uh, and I said, I'm fine. Just do what you got to do. <laughs> take whatever piece of you got to take and be on with it. Um, and then she said these words, which kind of struck me because I had not considered them. Have they talked to you about how this is going to affect your mobility? <laughs> and I said, no, I would I probably would have never have went if they would have talked to me about how it was going to affect my mobility. Um, but uh, unfortunately, uh, they were not able to close the wound on Thursday. Um, and so I have an open wound on my foot. Um, uh, for some of you that have been praying and have asked, I had a melanoma that was removed uh, from my foot. It, it was a, a mole that tested positive uh, for melanoma. And, uh, and so they removed it and they did not close the wound because they need to make sure that they got all of it. And uh, so they're going to be going back and, uh, and letting me know this week um, whether or not I need to go back in and have more removed or whether it's good to go. Um, but it's about a quarter, it's about a quarter sized hole. I don't want to get too graphic today. Uh, so that's all I'll tell you. So, um, but again, I find that God has a very interesting sense of humor because this is really, really hard for me. <laughs> Um, and I said to the surgeon, I said, I have to preach on Sunday. <laughs> she didn't seem to care about that. <laughs> she said, do you have a stool? I said, yes. She said, use it. Um, and it's very interesting that the title of our text is humility's priority and posture. And, uh, certainly this is a humbling position for me to be in, and I'm grateful for you bearing with me in this this morning. And so we're going to continue in our study of 1 Corinthians. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're moving through the chapter. We're actually moving into the middle of the chapter today, and we're going to find that the people of God in Corinth had a problem, and their problem was with pride, I find very often, more often than not, the biggest problems in my life often surround that very same reality, pride. 
And so as we open the text this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we want to ask for the Lord to bless our time together. And we're going to read verses 6 to 13. Let's pray. Lord, again, we gather together this morning around your living and active word, and we are so thankful for its power. And we are so thankful for the promises in your word that it never returns void. Lord, today we can gather together as a body of believers here in, in this building and wherever we're at, whether we're home or whether we're out somewhere with our families on a vacation weekend, we can surround these words and we can know that your spirit is at work and your spirit is using these words, your words, your living active words to produce the fruit that he intends for our lives. We open this text this morning, Lord, and we find a church that was struggling with pride and we find Paul challenging them, reminding them of the importance of humility, of serving one another in love as he and Apollos had modeled before them. And we pray that you would use this text to turn our hearts towards humility as we seek to love and serve one another here on earth. Help us grow in a greater love for you and a greater love for each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 to 13 today. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then, if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have what you want. Already you've become rich. Without us you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death. Because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world. The refuse. Of all things. Paul has applied that which he has unpacked in chapters 1 through 4 to the life and ministry of both he and Apollos. Paul and Apollos' unity in message and in mission was to the benefit of the church. For if the leaders of the church are divided, how much more so will the people of the church be divided? And so here in chapter 4, Paul is winding down the opening stanzas of his letter. He's aimed the portion, this portion of his letter, directly at the corporate church. He's opening his letter by reminding the church what we all have in common. And we reviewed that a number of weeks ago. A common savior, a common gift, that gift is grace. A common state of guiltless before the Father, a common hope of heaven. A simple and singular message of Christ and him crucified. 
Paul has then moved to show how the message that we have, this simple message, conflicts with the perceived wisdom of the world. And he's challenged our posture as ministers and servants to each other. We discovered that the primary posture of the Christian servant is one of humility, vulnerability, even weakness, as Paul boasted in his own weakness. So that whatever God accomplishes through us is a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And the faith of those who come to Christ through our ministry rests in the power of God, not our own strength. Paul has identified in chapters 1 to 4 that one of the clearest signs of immaturity among believers is division. And he's cautioned us to move away from pitting Christian workers against one another. He shared that all Christian workers are powered by the same fuel, God's grace, and that we're all building on the same foundation, the foundation of Jesus Christ. He's encouraged us in the first four chapters to stop comparing and trying to determine the effectiveness of each other's ministry, one over another. And we were reminded by Paul that ministry effectiveness is determined by God. For God brings all ministry increase. The goal of the Christian minister then is to be found faithful. And through these opening chapters that we've studied together, Paul has used many different illustrations. He's used word pictures to help us see the different ways that Christian leaders are to be working in the body of Christ. He's spoken about farmers. He's talked about builders, about servants, and about stewards. And now... Here in verse 6, Paul says that he's applied all of these things to himself and to Apollos for three primary reasons. Take a look again at verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos. First, for your benefit. For your benefit. The first reason was for the benefit of the people of God in Corinth. They needed to see that their leaders were willing to practice what they were preaching. And we said this before, but it's worth repeating again here. Paul and Apollos had very different styles. They had different presentation methods. They had different ways of communicating and ministering to the people that God had placed before them. Some of the people of God in Corinth related more closely to Paul. Some related more closely to Cephas. Still others to Apollos and and even some to unnamed workers that aren't even mentioned in the text. There's nothing wrong with us connecting to and relating better to certain leaders than others. But what was and what still is not okay is taking pride in one leader or one servant over another. Especially in a way that might lead to unhealthy division within the body of Christ. When we do this, friends, we we fail to consider that what we might not relate to or connect with in either another servant's words or leadership style could very well be a lifeline to another brother or sister in Christ. And many times our divisions, and, and here the divisions in the Corinthian church, were bathed not in biblical Here is how it is, but more so in personal preferences over who they desired as Christian workers among them. 
And the people of God in Corinth and sometimes us would use eloquent or uh, rhetoric, uh, eloquent speech or rhetoric to defend our personal preference as somehow better, even more spiritually minded than another person's personal preferences. Going beyond what is written. Which is the second reason that Paul says he applied these things. Look at the second part of verse 6. That you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Paul and Apollos had differences, but they themselves were not willing to let their differences create division within the bodies that they were serving. Their methods and approach and style and model of ministry were not the same. But they didn't use what was written to set one up against the other. And church, this is something we must learn. Learning to not go beyond what is written must be both taught and seen. Believers have to see it modeled in godly men and women who hold differences. And in the church, we are a diverse body. There are many, many differences. We don't have to look any further than the current context we're living in to see the many differences that we have, perspectives and views within the body of Christ. And what we often find is this, the deeper we go, the more division there is. For in the depths, nuance, clarity, conciseness become more and more important. And so to combat that, Paul had kept his message Simple. Remember, he said, I came to you with one message, not a lot of different messages, one. And how did he define that message? You remember what did he say it was? Christ and him crucified. This was purposeful, church, because in the essentials, there must be unity. And Paul and Apollos were unified in the message and in the mission that mattered most. And if Paul and Apollos were not to become puffed up against one another, trying to justify or defend their approaches, going beyond what was written, perhaps their example would be able to serve well for the people of God in Corinth. So then Paul reveals a third reason that he applies these things. Look at the end of verse 6. That none of you may be puffed up in favor one against another. And friends, being puffed up against one another in the church should be one of the things that is most unraveling and disturbing to us. There is no one congregation that is the same. We are described as a body. And every single local body is very, very different. Not one local body is the same as, every, as any other, even if they claim or hold to the same or similar beliefs. And each congregation and the leaders of each congregation need to understand the measure of ministry or need to seek the Lord's will for the measure of ministry that's required for their particular body. What is required in one body may be very different than another. But that does not mean that one body is better, more superior, or even more spiritual than another body of Christ. Church, we should not be in the business of puffing ourselves up and over one another. 
Some congregations require more milk teaching. Some are ready for more meat, but most need a mixture of both. Some congregations are small. Some are large. Some are made up of new believers. Some are made up of believers in many different walks of life. We cannot get puffed up one against another. And this pride is exactly what Paul is talking about here. In Christ, we are all on equal footing. And this kind of judgment and critique and criticism against other bodies of Christ is other foolishness. And it's one way that pride manifests itself in the individual corporate bodies of Christ. And it's very interesting, churches, as we sometimes get busy devouring one another within the church, bickering and separating over minutia, there still is a world of people dying who desperately need to hear the gospel. And we can become too tied up focusing on ourselves to fulfill the commission that we've been given. Paul says, don't be puffed up in favor one against another. And this reality, the reality that this was happening in the body of Christ in Corinth, this frustrated Paul. And in this text, he's building towards a crescendo. Watch how he does this. Take a look at verse 7. Three very hard and pointed questions. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast As if you did not receive it. There are three questions here, church. Who, what, and why? The first question can be read in the Greek as this. Who sees you as superior? And its intent moves the people of God in Corinth to understand how pride-filled and arrogant their comparison game is. The question actually begs the answer, you do. In other words, what Paul is saying is, you are the ones who think yourself as more superior. You've set yourself up as greater, or as better, or as more spiritual than others. You are acting as one who has earned more, or is by their own efforts or privilege to be considered greater than any other believer. But friends, we must be reminded that if we are anything at all, We are what we are because of the grace of God. And that is true for every single believer. Paul said this, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me has not been without effect. Who do we think we are to pass judgment on other brothers and sisters in Christ? There are many who worship the same God that we do and are saved through the same blood of Jesus that we are saved by, who have received the same exact grace that we received, that worship and practice their faith very differently than we do. And that's okay. Church, with God's word as our source and our anchor, how we practice and apply our faith does not change who we are or who we have been made to be. We belong to God through Christ. Adopted into the family of God by the blood of Jesus. And that blood 
works the same way for every believer, whether it's a believer in Africa, a believer in Haiti, China, or America. So Paul then asks the second question. What do you have that you did not receive? And again, it begs the answer. Nothing. Nothing, friends. We have nothing apart from God. And everything that we have is a gift of God. It's evidence of his grace in our lives. Those who are in Christ, we share in this singular need, a great need for Jesus and his help and his guidance every day. And we live by the promise that Jesus has given us all we need. We have everything we need in him. Remember Paul's words at the end of chapter 3. All things are ours. The ministers that God sends us. Evidence of his grace. This world, life, death, the present, the future. We have all we need. And we, by our own efforts, have earned none of it. And church, our response to this should be great thankfulness. We should be incredibly, incredibly thankful. So Paul's third question follows. If we've already received everything we need, why do we boast as if we have not received it? We have everything we need. Stop looking at each other and playing this comparison game that we often play in the church and with other believers. This comparison game is in part what stirs division and jealousy and envy and strife, that which Paul's warned about earlier in his letter. And we come to find, friends, that when we spend too much time looking at others and what they are doing and how they are practicing their faith, we often forget that we already have everything that we need to do for what God has called us to do today. We have everything. Friends, these questions were necessary. They were necessary for the church for self-reflection because pride was on full parade among the people of God in Corinth. And sometimes, friends, in the church today, pride is still on full parade. You remember verse 5 from last week? We studied it. You remember the end, Paul talks about a commendation that comes from God. And part of the problem with the Corinthian church is that they were living as if they had already received this commendation. And Paul is now going to move through this text to use a literary tool that he rarely uses. And you're going to notice a change here as we move to this next portion. Paul's going to use sarcasm. And how he's going to use it, he's going to use it to put his finger right on the stagnant wound of pride and press in. To show the Corinthians how they're guilty of this. Take a look at verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us you've become kings. And would that you did reign. So we might share that rule with you. They were living friends. The people of God in Corinth were living. As if they had already obtained that which was promised, that there was nothing left for them to do. But it's interesting how different Paul was. Remember what Paul said oftentimes in his ministry? Not that I have already what? Obtained. 
Paul didn't live this way. He didn't live this way. To the people of God in Corinth, complacency had replaced urgency. Why share the gospel and desire to see others come to a saving knowledge of Jesus if we already have our golden tickets? We're good to go. For the people of God in Corinth, division defined community. Instead of doing what we've been called to do, let's tie ourselves up trying to justify our own personal views and perspectives and convictions and understandings and interpretations and applications of the non-essentials of the faith. Why people all around us who need to hear the gospel continue to die and go to hell. Church, it's, it's always easier to focus on ourselves than sacrificing and laying down our lives for one another. Isn't it true that parades are always more fun than funerals? So here's a picture. What do you see? What do you see up there? Go ahead, what do you see? Celebration, right? These are parades. These are some of my favorite parades. One of the pictures is of the Quarryville Fair, Quarryville Parade, an annual treat for our family. One of them is from the 2008 World Series. Phillies won the World Series. Some of you remember. It was a long time ago now. There's probably some people here that weren't even born. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, Vince. Hopefully it comes back around again soon. (laughs) And there's one up there from the Eagles in their celebration parade holding a trophy But the one I really want to hone in on is that one that's in the lower left corner of the screen. As you said, it would be in the lower right corner. Anybody know what that's an image of? That is an image of a parade route that was known as the Via Sacra. In ancient Rome, the Via Sacra was a road that military generals paraded down after they were victorious in battle. It's a road that winded through some of the most sacred and religious Roman sites that they were. And the road actually began at the top of the Capitoline Hill and ended right at the Colosseum. And in an age when there was no national newspapers, there was no social media, the public spectacle of a parade was the only way that the people could be assured that their military leaders had been victorious. And these parades were rather common throughout the history of the Roman Empire. Some scholars have identified that there were over 500 of these parades in Roman history. And so the procession would begin at the top of the Capitoline Hill, and in your minds you might imagine in the front would be all the magistrates and the senators, and then who followed behind them were the trumpeters, and then you'd have carts that would have been filled with the booty from war, then you'd have all of these exotic animals from foreign lands, then goods of the conquered enemy, then the victorious military officers and their families, along with chariots and uniformed soldiers. From the front, the victorious leader would be celebrated among the people almost as king for the day, and his name would be etched in infamy among the people, and he would be celebrated. Bringing up the rear of the procession at the end of this parade were the captives, the opposing military leaders and their families. 
who were now the prisoners of war, many of them were marching to their death. And these were the most humiliated and belittled of the whole procession. The name of this charade was actually called a triumph. And we still use that word triumph today to talk about victory. And many biblical scholars believe that this is the exact procession that Paul has in mind as he begins verse 9. Take a look. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Paul actually used similar terminology in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, regarding the real triumph that we have, the procession of which is led in Jesus Christ. And while the people of God were busy celebrating their perceived commendation, the apostles and the ministers and the faithful servants among them were dying to themselves daily, becoming as a public spectacle to the world, to angels. And to men, church, I'm reminded of a very significant moment in Jesus' life. It's one of the significant moments as you read the biography of Jesus in the Gospels that sticks out to me very, very clearly, and all of us know it. One day, Jesus had gathered up his disciples. This after the mother of Zebedee had come to him asking. Do you remember the question she asked? What did the mother ask? Which one, or would you let my two sons reign with you, one at your right hand, one at your left. And in this text, in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 28, Jesus is both communicating his own posture while setting up a posture for the early church leaders and church leaders today to continue to model as we serve one another. Look at what Jesus said. Jesus called the disciples to him and said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Church, friends in the faith, the victorious lifestyle of a king will always be a more attractive option than daily death as a slave. That's the reality. But there is a priority and there is a posture that Paul is given to humility. And not just Paul, but also, Jesus, throughout their ministries, they continued to elevate this concept of humility over and above pride. Pride with the, which the Corinthians people so loved and lived for. You've heard it said, and I've heard it says, everyone loves a winner. Pride. Look at verse 10, steeped in irony. Steeped. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. 
Church, for the cause of Christ, Paul was willing to be perceived as a fool, as weak, and as one in disrepute. What is very ironic is that some of the people of God in Corinth perceived Paul as foolish. Yet, in Paul's foolishness, they had been made wise in Christ. Paul was thought to be weak among some among them. But his weakness was purposeful and intentional so that the faith of the people wouldn't rest in his wisdom or his rhetoric or his eloquence or his dress or his strength and the great things that he could do, but rather in God's power. And Paul was not always held in high esteem among the people. Yet, his example of living and serving as the least among them honored the people of God as fellow believers and as co-heirs of Christ. Church, Paul's lesson here, his lifestyle, his humility, is something that we today might consider to emulate. And he was not just giving lip service to his humility. He practiced it. Take a look at verse 11, leading into the beginning of verse 12. To this present hour... We hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our hands. Church, have you ever considered that? The Apostle Paul, the man who they write biographies about, who much of the New Testament is written by, he knew the pains of hunger and thirst. I get hungry for a half hour and I can't handle it. I need a granola bar or something. Paul knew so much more than that. Do you know what a hunger pain can do to you? When our children first came home from Haiti, our youngest son, he would eat breakfast in the morning and he would keep the food in his mouth until lunchtime, chewing on it, not swallowing, because he didn't want to feel that hunger pain. And this is a real pain. Paul knew what it meant to go without. He understood what thirst, what it was to thirst and not be satisfied. He did not have many clothes. He didn't dress fancy. He didn't have the nicest dress shoes or suits. He maybe didn't wear flip-flops on Sunday morning, but probably would excuse me on this instant. He didn't have means or access to keep himself well-maintenanced or buffeted. He probably had a beard and maybe even a big one. He was a man without a permanent earthly home. He was transient. He relied on the goodwill of other people or his own tent-making skills to give him shelter. He knew how to work with his hands. He understood labor. Hard work was not mysterious to him. And he frequently uses illustrations like carpentry, farming, animal care, shepherding, and even athletics. To communicate the lifestyle principles for laborers in the vineyard of Jesus Christ. Friends, I've said it before. I'll say it again. People work is hard, humbling, and self-sacrificing work. Very much is. It may not take a toll on our outer selves. But for those of us that have done it and have put our hands in and have gotten dirty in it, we know the toll that it can take inside. 
And church, all of us are called at one level or another to be in relationship with one another, bearing one another's burdens, carrying each other, building one another up. It's hard. We hurt one another. We do. A mentor said to me one time, a long time ago, and it, it, it actually I was still in college at the time, and uh, he was a professor that I was very much influenced by. And he said to me, he said, Chris, you're going to go on to ministry, and I, I have one thing that I share to all my students that are going to serve as a pastor, and I want you to keep it with you. And when somebody says that to you, you lock it in. He said this, he says, ministry is an incredibly personal profession, but you have to be careful not to take much very personally. That hit. When we work together in the church, ministering to one another, sometimes we get hurt. It happens in families all the time. Sometimes we're going to hurt one another. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. And oftentimes when we ourselves are hurting or anxious or fearful, we sometimes tend to hurt other people. When we are insecure, we often want others to share in that feeling. When we feel shame, sometimes we want to shame others. When we're scared, sometimes we want to create or provoke fear in others. So we're not the only ones that feel the way that we do. We are in desperate need to not feel alone in our pain and our suffering. So when we are hurting, we sometimes try in rather unhealthy ways to draw other people into that hurt with us. And sometimes, friends, especially for Paul here and for Apollos and Cephas and a lot of the other church leaders, those who are out in front are the easiest and most accessible targets on which we can unload our own personal fear and insecurities. You have heard it said, and Paul actually experienced it as an apostle. The church often wounds or shoots its own. Paul was in the crosshairs of his own church people quite a bit. You'll see it throughout many of his letters, what the people thought about him. And he addresses it over and over and over again. And yet he lived a lifestyle and served in a ministry position that was and still is incredibly personal. And so look at how Paul avoided taking things too personally. His approach was very countercultural. Look at the end of verse 12. Through verse 13. Consider this. This was Paul's attitude. This was Paul's approach. When reviled. We bless. When persecuted. We endure. When slandered. We entreat. We have become. And are still. Like the scum of the world. The refuse of all things. One of the beauty, beauties of studying Paul's letters, one of the, the, the most marvelous things that you'll capture as you read Paul's writings to the church, is how his writing and his teaching pulls so deeply from Jesus' life and teaching and ministry. This was not new because Jesus had said something very very similar in his life and ministry. There's a direct correlation between what Paul is teaching here and what Jesus preached 
in one of the greatest sermons ever communicated. It was preached on the Chorazin Plateau on a hill known as the Mount of Beatitudes. And it's where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount where he said the following words. And listen. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Church, all of this because we know that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And it is so beautiful that Cephas, Peter, same person, wrote very similarly in his letters to the early church that as believers in Christ, we are to clothe ourselves with humility. One towards another. So we've asked this question throughout this series as we've studied this book. How might our lives look in light of these realities? And how might we live as disciples of Jesus and function together as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world? And I believe the text today answers that question in this way. Putting away pride, we clothe ourselves in humility loving and serving others, giving them priority above ourselves. As our team comes to lead us and be thou my vision, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the testimony of Paul. Thank you, Lord, that he was willing to so boldly say the things that needed to be said. As we read these words today, Father, we might understand that there would probably be no church that would be excited about reading those words because they hurt. They press into places that we protect and keep other people from. We all wrestle with pride. And yet you desire for us to serve one another in love and humility, to be broken and to be vulnerable and to be weak in each other's presence. But yet, Lord, all of us are guilty of hiding. All of us put on a mask. And yet, God, you help us. You see through our pride. You see through the things that we hold, cling so desperately to. And as your spirit works, you slowly break us. Relinquishing our grip on the things that the world holds so clearly and dearly. You take them from our hands. And you gently move us along in the faith. Lord, help us serve one another as Paul has addressed in his letter. Help us be servants. Help us be stewards, caretakers. Help us 
Stir one another on to love and good works. Let us not become distracted. Let us not chase after things that are not edifying or for the building up of the body. Help us to be broken. Let Jesus, your son, be the vision for us of how this is supposed to look. And help us live with the attitude that Paul called us to in Philippians chapter 2. We need help to lay down our lives for one another, Lord. It's not easy. And this world says it's foolishness. But yet we know it's what you want and desire. And we want to honor you. We're praying that the Spirit and that Jesus would help us to do it. In his name we pray. Amen.